following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning. We're going to return to our look in the book of Nahum. I was wondering if when we started our study in this book that whether some of you might have wondered, now, Zechler, where is that one in my book, Bible? And, and what it is about? <laughs> where is it and what is it about? Because it's such a small little book that it's easy to miss it, even if you're looking for it. And somebody calls out the book and says, okay, and then you go flipping through your Bible and say, okay, now, it's here somewhere. It, it must be. He, he told me to look, to turn there. So, so we're now looking at this again. And one of the interesting things is that we continually review and look again at what we've looked at before. You've noticed repetition, and, that, and that's a part of what it's all about, is going again and again to, to see, and sometimes to see things we missed, sometimes to see more clearly things that we did look at and see some of before. So there are a lot of reasons why it's good to have a measure of repetition. The way that we have been, in a broad way, thinking about the book is in three broad categories in terms of big headings. And I basically, I put one on each of the chapters. And for chapter one, we said, well, the whole book, we can say, depicts Nineveh in the headlights of a coming judgment. So that will tell you what the book is about. Nineveh in the headlights of a coming judgment. Now, in the first chapter, we said that we see considerable emphasis on the idea of the certainty of that common judgment, the certainty of it. And in the second chapter, we talked about some of the things that, that give some description of that common judgment. And then in the last chapter, chapter three, talking about reasons for the judgment. And so that's kind of a broad outline. Now, there are other places where the outline could be broken down, and, and this is obviously not a final in terms of what might be a better way to arrange it, but I thought that might be a helpful way uh, to consider when we think about that. Today, I intend to have us focus again in a little bit more at the end of chapter two, and as I was looking at this Part, then I thought, well, maybe I should have adjusted my heading for my third section up to verse 11 in the second chapter. Let me read what's here in chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. And here's what it says Where is the dwelling of the lions? and the feeding place 
of the young lions. Where the lion walked, the lioness and lion's cub, and no one made them afraid. The lion tore in pieces enough for its cubs, kill for his lionesses, filled his caves with prey and his dens with flesh. Behold, I'm against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. Now, you notice, I'm sure, that in reading those few verses, that actually all three of the headings that I use are included. They're all there, right? So that these headings obviously are not no ways exclusive or totally inclusive, but just general outlines. Now, so this little section talks about lions. Now that really is quite interesting. So what's going on there? I thought we were talking about Nineveh and the Assyrians. And now all of a sudden, we're talking about lions. Now this brings our attention to one of the things that I mentioned earlier on. And it has to do with the use of language. And what the what the prophet is doing with language uh, is, is what we see here. This lion is not referring to just some literal lion. But one of the things interesting about the Assyrians is that for them, the lion was a very important symbol. In some ways, the lion reflected what the way they saw themselves, ferocious. And in a lot of the things that have been discovered with regard to the Assyrian kingdom, you will see lions of all sorts, some even with animal, with a human head and, and all kinds of things. And so the lion was a, a very important symbol. So what then is the prophet doing here? So it appears that what he is doing is using rhetorical expression of a lion to talk about this kingdom that has come into the headlights for judgment in Nineveh, the Assyrians, the Assyrian leadership. So lions there. I want to point out a few things here, though, in in this section. Because when we think about lions, clearly the passage is saying something about lions as an animal and how they behave. But that's really not the main issue here, what they do. But the issue is about Nineveh and the Assyrians and what they do. But so similarities here. So the idea of providing what how the, the lion is a furious, a ferocious animal, it provides. And, but here, notice some of these things here. 
Now, when it says, where is the dwelling place of the lions? Now, my understanding is that really what's going on here is that this is a taunt. I used that word before, a poking of the bear, <laughs> uh, drawing attention to say, you know, here is, uh, I thought you were a big, mighty, powerful. Where of the powerful lions? What happened? This is that kind of a taunt. So they're in the headlights of judgment. The judgments are going to come. And when the judgment happens, then these questions, well, what happened to Assyria? People will be looking and not able to find Assyria. And hundreds of years will go by and nobody will even know. Major wars, I think, uh, would cross over the path where Assyria had been. I think even it says Caesar crossed over the path territory that had been Assyria and didn't even know it <laughs> because the prophecy is, was a true prophecy and what it said was going to happen it happened. So a lion now it seems here though when we look at this okay so the lion feeding a feeding place for the young lions that's a reasonable animals do provide for their own and it was reasonable for Assyrians to provide for their own as well that's reasonable. Where the lion walked, the lioness, lion's cub, no one made them afraid. Now, no one made them afraid. That is the way that Assyrians, the Assyrians saw themselves as this impregnable nation that nobody could come against them successfully, that they were well fortified. And that try as you might, you won't succeed. Not afraid. What a contrast we're going to see as to what was said was going to happen and then what actually did. But now, in verse 12, still in chapter 2, the lion tore in pieces enough, enough for his cubs. Any question, any problem with that? That sounds all reasonable. Killed for his lionesses, that also sounds reasonable. But look at the next two parts here. It says, fill his caves with prey and his dens with flesh. Now, it seems that what is being said here is a going far beyond what was necessary to meet the need. It kind of reminds me of the New Testament account of the man who had the barns. And he had so much that he said, my barns can't contain it all, so what will I do? Well, I'll just tear these down and build bigger barns. Excess, going beyond the need. And this is the way the Assyrians conducted themselves. So that in warfare, we will see some of these details. So that in warfare, they went beyond what they needed to do to get a victory over their enemy. And... God was watching. His spotlight was on the whole affair. Sometimes people think they're doing things in the dark and it won't be brought to light. Failing to realize that God's spotlight is already on it. 
doing things in the dark, thinking they won't come to light. But God's spotlight is already on it. And this is the idea here. So this notion then of lions and tearing in peace and filling the cage and going to excess and all this, it was not a good or a right thing to do. They should not have conducted themselves that way. They should have, in warfare, just done what was necessary to win the war. So then that's, then we came to the phrase then, it said, where God says, behold, I am against you. That's a very ominous expression. And I tried to put some emphasis on that the last time about what that really means for God to, to be against. I don't know how to express it properly. But we know that when that is the case, it's a serious situation. And for God to announce that he was against Nineveh meant that Nineveh was in a perilous situation. I'm against you. And then he says what he will do. I will burn your chariots in smoke and devour. The sword shall devour your young lions, your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. So they're going to be torn down from their high, seemingly impregnable position and dragged all the way down into obscurity. And humiliation will be there before they are obscure. But that's what God's dealing with them is. And so they had a choice, as we said, as to what their conduct would be. But they didn't have the choice of what God's consequences would be. They had no choice about that. We made that as an application for ourselves. That God has given to us an opportunity to make choices about certain things. And it matters to him how we choose. And it's best for us to understand what he says and how he wants us to choose and then to choose that way. That's the best. Oftentimes we don't do it. But this expression, I'm against you, is used repeatedly, I say repeatedly, a number of times in the scriptures. There are other places where the exact same phrase is used. And sometimes God is using it against his own people to say, I'm against you because of their bad behavior. God says, I'm against you. So now, we move on into chapter 3 again. The wall of Nineveh. In chapter 3, it starts out with these words. Woe to the bloody city 
Woe to the bloody city. The word woe gets the attention. Now, it doesn't just get the attention here in this use, but it's introducing a pronouncement of doom that's coming. Woe. It almost makes you knocks you back up against the wall. Woe. To the bloody city, the bloodthirsty city. How do you like that for a, a, a title for a city, bloodthirsty? To be known for that particular aspect or that particular characteristic, bloodthirsty. That's the way God sees them. It's that full of lies and robbery. Full of lies. Just lie about everything. Rob, steal, take, forcefully take, whatever they want. It's that it's victim never departs. They just keep right on at it. The bloodthirsty city. You know, the Assyrians were a notorious lot. You can read about some of the cruelty that they inflicted upon those against whom they, they fought. Doing things like cutting off of hands and cutting off feet and ears and noses, gouging out eyes, lopping off heads, impaling bodies, all kinds of things. Even the peeling of the skin of a living person. The Assyrians are known for having done all of these kinds of things. And so you can understand that idea to say, well, a bloodthirsty city. It is as if they couldn't be satisfied just to do the regular. It's as if, you know, some people are into a sport of hunting, hunting various animals. And I had a client who, when I was a probation officer, who regularly flew to Africa and places like that for the explicit purpose of hunting certain game animals. Now, we know that a lot of people did illegal hunting of a lot of those animals. But that was his thrill. That's what he enjoyed. That's what he did. We can think about the Assyrians being people who enjoyed that kind of activity, but their prey were other human people, other people. Can you imagine that? It's one thing to be a gamesman or a hunter. It's something else again to do that. And people are the prey. 
So the Assyrians were really a vile people. And the more I read about it, the more you just, sometimes you read about some of these atrocities that were committed by these, well, we say historical, but, you know, we can read about contemporary things that are going on now. And, and some of those things, they still, I mean, you, you just have to, you, you can't keep reading. You just have to, I, I, got, I can't have handle any more of this now. Maybe later I'll read more. Think about the Assyrians being like that. So when this kind of announcements are coming about them, it is fully justified. God is just in the judgment that he's bringing. That's the point of it. The people have to be very despicable to come to such a judgment as this. Now, in the next verse here, verse 2, you see something now of what's going on here. It talks about horsemen charging with bright sword and glittering spear. Now we're in the midst of the warfare. And there is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses. So the idea is that the death, the deaths that are occurring in the battle are, are so numerous that it impedes those who are, are not dead yet. It's like they stumble over dead bodies, whichever way they turn. The description to say Nineveh, Assyria, this is what's going to be your lot. And to say that to them while they were still in their strength would seem to be a phenomenal thing. It would seem to be foolish, empty talk. What's this prophet talking about? He doesn't know anything. But what he didn't know is that the prophet didn't have a message. He didn't have any, he didn't have any message for the people. He was just delivering God's message. <laughs> he didn't have a message. He was just a messenger. And so any problem with the message was not with him. It was with him who was being represented. The, the prophet brought the word. And so it was not his own. Now it says here in verse 4, because of the multitude of harlotries and seductive harlotry, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. Families, nations, and this land of Assyria, they had a lot of things going on that were attracting other peoples of their world. And a lot of these attractions were like trapping a trap set for animals. It looks beautiful and wonderful. And they're drawn and they come in. And then they are trapped and destroyed. Nineveh was known, or Assyrians were known for all kinds of idol worship and all kinds of gross practices, sexual perversion practices, and other kinds of idolatrous practices. They were known for all of that. And some of that stuff 
was attractive to the outsiders and they came in and they imbibed that and it destroyed them. Now, one of the things that I do think about, you can't help but think about our own nation when you read about these things. And you say, there are a lot of people from all over the world who are trying their best to get here. Lots of people come here from all over the world. Now, one question, though, is, so then once they get here, what do they align themselves with of what we have to offer? How many of them are coming in and they just latch on to the things that are destructive to their souls? How many of them? We would think it would be good for those who come in and they get associated with the contact with or latch on to the things that are going to be redeeming for them. They get to understand who Christ is and of their need for him as a sinner and of how they can be reconciled with him who is the judge of all. That would be a great thing. You know, when we think about people going to Nineveh, we don't think about those people going in and, and finding and being attracted to those things that are right in the sight of the Lord, in the sight of God. In fact, we would say that the evil was so prominent in Nineveh that all of those who were drawn in went right along with them to the, to the Mars because they imbibed what Nineveh was. And so this is the sort of thing depicted. A multitude of harlotries, seductive harlot, a mistress of sorceries, sells nations through her harlotries. One of the things that's interesting is that even the Israelites were attracted by Nineveh, reached out to Nineveh or the Assyrians for help in battle. I have verses. I'm not going to turn to those now. But reached out to them to, because they said, I need an ally. I need some help. But it turned out to not be so good. And obviously, ultimately, the Nineveh turned, as a serious turn on them. And so that by the time we get to Nahum, the northern kingdom has already been decimated by these very Assyrians. Wreaked, wrecked, they have wreaked havoc on them, people who have been sought out as allies. Because they were looking for help, they needed help, but they were looking at the wrong place for it. And if they look the wrong place, they're going to get the wrong kind of help. And they're going to get the wrong mindset. And if they seem to get relief in a temporary measure by having gone to that wrong source, that just sets them up for the grand fall. 
And so we can take from that and be careful. So now in verse 5, what does verse 5 say? Well, it looks like we just read that in verse 13 of chapter 2. So God is drawing attention to this. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts, like he's a God, he's the God of a marching army. I will lift your skirts over your face. He says, I'm going to put you to shame and ignominy. I am going to make a display of you that will be such that people will be turning aside and say, I, I don't even want to see that despicable sight. To think to have been at the pinnacle of height and power and might to come to, to such humiliation. But that's what this is talking about. God says, I will bring the humiliation on you. So this depiction now is also, you know, we see the use of the language in terms of, you know, I like a lady and garments being lifted and all that and, and the shame that comes from all that. And, and the shame like this was a very big deal in the Assyrian culture, very big deal, that kind of exposure. But if that's what the Lord says. He uses this expression to say what it will be. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile, make you a spectacle, making it so that everybody can see how awful and vile and foul and wicked and depraved and every other term you can imagine that these people were. This is God's reckoning. None of the nations that came against the Assyrians could accomplish such a thing as this. Even if they had tried to bind themselves together to go against that nation. They, they, they didn't accomplish it. And the Assyrians knew they were a strong nation. So that they didn't think it could happen. But in verse 7 it says, It shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste that once great, mighty, powerful, impregnable city laid waste, who will bemoan her? Where shall I see comforters for you? As if having been mighty and great and powerful and on the pinnacle to be reduced to the place where they couldn't even hire a mourner to come and mourn them. We understood that even despicable characters in that time, there would be at least some mourners. They could find mourners. They could pay them to come. 
and mourn the dead. But this would be such that they wouldn't even be able to do that. Wow, what a fall. What a fall. And so that is what it was all about with Nineveh having come into the headlights of God's judgment. They were in a bad spot. Now in the next section, and we're going to go there a little bit, but notice what now the prophet is doing next here. He says all what he said. And now he says, now I want you to think about something here. We've talked about history and how it is good to, to understand something about history, to know something about it, to learn something about it, even our personal histories, to learn from those. And there's a good reason for that, because if we can learn, then we can avoid certain problems, I'll put it that way. So he says here now, are you better than, it says, no, Amon, no, Amon, or really what this is talking about is Thebes. Thebes was a powerful city, well-fortified in upper part of Egypt, and it was in a position very similar to what Nineveh had. And so the prophet now said, well, so consider this country, this, this powerful place. And here, listen to what it says. That was situated by the river, that had the waters around her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall was the sea. In other words, they were sitting in a place where they were in they could be expected to be able to ward off whatever enemy might come against them. They were in a safe place, safe spot, good and well fortified. And so the location, and so Nineveh and, uh, was somewhat like that as well, with the water around them and all that sort of thing, which would help with their defense against enemies who might come against them. So that is one of the things now. He said, okay, so now... Thebes had this kind of an arrangement, and you have something similar. And it would have seemed to have served Thebes well, and apparently it did for a long time. Now, in verse 9, it says, Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength. These are surrounding nations. And it was boundless. And then it says, put and lubim were your helpers. So basically what this is saying is, Thebes, or no Amon, they had, in terms of the geographical layout, advantages for their defense. But that wasn't all they had. They also had allies. They had allies. And so if the natural defenses were not going to be sufficient... They could call on their allies and still expect a victory. They were situated like that. And so the prophet is saying to, to Nineveh, now consider yourselves in comparison to them. 
And then it says in verse 10, yet, even with this, the natural fortifications, the allies, even with that, it says here, she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed to pieces at the head of every street that cast lots for her. Honorable men and all her great men were bound in chains. Now, here's the irony. Who defeated these people in Thebes? Who did that? You know who did it? That was the Assyrians. They did that to Thebes, who was situated like uh, the Assyrians were when the prophet was writing to them. That, that really, to me, is a very interesting thing because they had brought that. But see, that is the kind of thing, I think, that could cause somebody to be overly confident because probably from their view, that was a really well-fortified country with allies, and we went in and, and, and destroyed them. And so what greater force could we be worried about? We could handle them as well-fortified as they were. We're well-fortified and we're powerful, and nobody can deal with us. I think that would be the attitude. But the prophet said, look what happened to them. I want to point out a couple more things here before I close, right from this part I just read. Now, it talks about them being carried away, so the carried away captives out of there. But it talks about young children being dashed to pieces. Now, when we talked about their violence going beyond what would be necessary for a victory, they had no value placed on life at all. So rather than deport the children, they just killed them where they found them in a despicable way, in, a, in an open public way. It just shows the grave depravity of the heart of the people who were doing that. Coming right out here. Talks about at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men. So the people who had been men of esteem, they reduced them to slavery, put them in chains, and all of her great men, and just marched them off. They would be slaves now. See, a lot of uh, things were done that didn't need to be done, even if they were going to defeat Thebes, even if they were going to bring the battle to them. A lot they did didn't need to be done. So the warfare, and this is one of the problems that happened with the Assyrians. Even when they dealt with the northern kingdom of Israel, God used them because they were God's instrument for the judgment of the northern kingdom. And so to an extent, up to a limit, what they were doing was ordained of God as his just judgment brought. But the text of scripture tell us the authority that was given to them. They far exceeded the bounds of their authority. They had the authority to do this much, and they did this much. Why did they do that? 
because of the depravity of their hearts. They refuse to stay within the bounds that God assigns. Depravity of the heart. That's quite a word. I think that's a challenge for us, too. Stand within the bounds that God has set. We know for our nation that is a big-time problem. God has ordained the nations and the powers, but therefore his purposes are not for their own. We're to God that our nation could learn that. We will pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for you are God and there is no other beside you. So we thank you for the privilege that you gave to us and have continued to give to us to be one who is a born one, as John would say, a little born one, through whom you are able to accomplish your purposes. So we ask you to help us and work in our hearts to mold and to shape us and help us to desire the things that are of the Lord and to do those things. We ask in the name of Christ the Savior, thanksgiving. Amen. Thank you for your kind attention.